Welcome to Deep and the Wilds. I'm Melissa Hawks, and I'm glad you're joining me. This is my first episode, and I chose Kevin Hargaden to join me for it because we had a great conversation about spirituality and the past that we've chosen. I think that it's a great way to start out this first season of the podcast as there are quite a few discussions that will follow about the particulars of spirituality and the path I've personally chosen, along with many, many other diverse topics, which you'll see Kevin and I discuss as well. So thanks for joining me and sit back, relax, enjoy the show. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have um, a friend I met in a very interesting way um, with me today, Kevin. And uh, we met on an airplane. I was on my way to my brother's for Thanksgiving and found myself on an airplane full of religious scholars and theologians, (laughs) which was quite interesting to say the least, considering uh, my upbringing. And Kevin was seated next to me, and we just had the most delightful conversation. Um, And so I'm really excited to welcome him today. He is an Irish Protestant theologian who works for the Jesuits in Ireland. So I'm sure he'll be sharing a little bit more about that with us. But Kevin, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell people where they can find you online if you'd like them to. Uh, thanks, Melissa. It was uh, it was uh, the most pleasant conversation I've had with a stranger on an airplane. Um, <laughs> it was wonderful. So I am a theologian who works uh, for the Jesuits. I am the director of an organization that they have here in Dublin that's been running for the last 40 years called the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice. So you can find um, our stuff at uh, jcfj.ie. Um, for Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice.ie. And uh, uh, the work that I do there is, is probably not the work that I imagined that I would be doing for the rest of my life. Uh, but uh, we think about questions of social justice from a Christian perspective. And the Jesuits have been very uh, hospitable to me because I am, as you say, a Protestant, I'm a Presbyterian, and uh, they've never made that um, oddness in any way awkward uh they welcomed me in my protestantism <laughs> and it's uh, it's kind of wonderful to work for an organization that you're not natively at home with mm-hmm. yeah uh, does that make sense yeah um so it kind of leaves you perpetually in a state of gratitude for the fact that people <laughs> people are tolerating you um <laughs> It's good. Uh, uh, in terms of where else to find me, I suppose the, the place that I um, spend far too much of my time is on Twitter, where my my username is just just my name, at Kevin Hargaden. Um, and that's, that's who I am, and uh, that's what I do. All right. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like uh, I do resonate with you saying, have you, you know, being in a place where it's not native to you and yet people welcome you. I think in these conversations that I have been having and recording in this podcast, um, there are a lot of people with a lot of different perspectives. And so welcoming them in conversation, there is that sense of, you know, not so much tolerating each other, not in that way, but welcoming um, the differences to, uh, you know, help us grow. So. Um, that's great. Uh, the kind of conversations I like to have. Yeah. And actually that's the kind of conversation 
you and I had when we met on the airplane, I have to say, you are one of my favorite people I've met on the airplane as well. Um, there's always someone who wants to have a conversation with me, I've found, and not all of those are fun, but ours was enjoyable. And part of the, the thing that I liked about it was the fact that we kind of talked a little bit about our spiritual journeys and in some ways have gone um, passing each other and in opposite yeah. Of sorts. So what I would love to start off with is um, you sharing a little bit about your spiritual journey, what what that's looked like for you. Um, yeah, OK. Um, I, I should clarify as well that uh, people try to talk to me on airplanes, especially when they find out I'm a <laughs> theologian, because everybody has their own pet theories about religion. And the best thing about a long haul flight for me is that it's like seven or eight hours where no one can interrupt me. So I get to read books like I'd almost <laughs> pay the ticket fare just for that. So it, it was actually uh, it, it's a testimony to how good a conversation partner you are that I didn't, you know, cut it short after after completing my Irish my Irish obligation to be polite and do small talk um so uh, yeah uh, in terms of uh the small talk was good but we're gonna talk about heavy stuff here um Sorry, I, I was just jump right in I apologize yeah no that's the right way yeah um I I was raised in a, a very loving stable home um with a mother and father who loved each other and I have five siblings so it's a traditional Catholic home but uh, I, um, as soon as I was a teenager, kind of did, uh, had doubts. And um, by the time I was, say, 15 or 16, those doubts had solidified into outright scepticism. Um, and then soon after that, I would have described myself as, as an atheist. And I was a pretty angry atheist. This was, uh, you know, I never got quite as obnoxious as those Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens types, but I would have had a lot of sympathy with them. Um, that Christianity and religion generally, uh, all spirituality seemed to me to be, um, you know, at best the opiate of the masses, as Marx famously mm. described it. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, more commonly, it was, it was a genuinely pernicious commitment to irrationality in the face of scientific progress. Mm -hmm. um, and what happened to me was I, I met a bunch of Christians who were my age, who were not raised Christian uh, for mm -hmm. the large part. And uh, it wasn't just that they were able to uh, stand their ground against me in an argument, which was good. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't just the way that they argued, which was they had a generosity and a grace towards me. But it was actually how they treated each other. Um, you know, teenage we all remember what it's like to be in the, an adolescent and the strict hierarchies and the competition that exists in all social environments and just the insecurity that runs rife through those dreadful years of puberty. And yet uh, these guys made space for each other in a way that meant that that kind of competition wasn't there. So there were a whole bunch of things that, was, that were attractive to me about this, uh, this social group. And slowly over the course of uh, six or nine months, um, they their arguments were good enough to put to put me in a situation, I suppose, where I would say I questioned my doubts. Okay. Um, and then it would have taken two or three years longer before I, I was really happy to call myself a, a Christian. Sure. Um, but eventually I arrived at that position uh, where I was able to, to say I was a Christian and and kind of made sense of my life cohesively yeah. um and yeah that that was um a bad career move uh, <laughs> you know i went from being a software engineer 
uh, who would have been very comfortable to, to being a, a theologian, which is not the most lucrative career. Um, and uh, and it leaves me prone now to awkward conversations on airplanes, because if you're a software engineer, nobody wants to talk to you. <laughs> uh, whereas if you're a theologian, everybody is like, oh, I saw a documentary once about how Jesus was an alien, or uh, Jesus got married to a French girl, uh, or whatever other pet theories people have. So that's that's my, my, my position is one of moving from atheism to Christianity, um, in, in a process that was slow, uh, sure. that was very intellectually rigorous, but that was fundamentally driven by uh, the, the way in which what these Christians were saying mapped onto how they lived their lives. Right, right. So, it, you know, that, you know um, and, and being raised in Ireland, of course, you, you have a sense of this because you set, spent time in Ireland. And, sure. you know, Ireland is, is post, post-Catholic now. You know, it's, right. it's, it's kind of... Uh, it it skipped modernity. It it went straight to postmodernity. Um, so there's been massive changes since I was a child in Irish society, and it's not a particularly religious society anymore. But there's still enough of the echo of it, um, for for the ideas about God to linger. And what I realized was that uh, you can grow up in that kind of society that's kind of notionally Christian, right. and still not understand the absurd peculiarity of what Christians are saying. Right. So I, I would I would have felt that I was rejecting something that I had thoroughly investigated. Mm -hmm. But what I found in this group of friends was um, that the sheer radicality of Jesus's proposition was something that I'd never encountered before. Um, the way in which it has political implications and personal implications. It was so much more than just, you know, a kind of private devotional life that leads to some kind of sense of spiritual fulfillment. Uh, so yeah, it was a, it was, on the whole, I don't regret it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's good. That's good. What I love about what you just shared um, was uh, it, from an outside perspective, from me experiencing you uh, talk about it, it sounds like w what happened was you discovered a faith that worked for you, that worked with your understanding that worked with your intellect that worked with your experience it wasn't just accepting what you had been taught and the way that you had been raised but you needed to um dive in and find something that resonated with you and i love that because i um i came from a uh, you know a religious subculture that didn't really support that pursuit of of um curiosity and um, exploration. And so I really appreciate that. I also um, think it's really fascinating. You know, Americans don't fully comprehend um, the whole Catholic Protestant um, embattlement that occurs in Ireland. And I know that, that it has eased up some, but still, I, I said, I remember being there and saying something about somebody said, well, are you Catholic? And I was like, no, I'm not. I wasn't raised that way or whatever. I was like, but in the U.S. it's not really that big a deal. Like Catholic, Protestant, it's not a big deal. And they just looked at me like huge eyes, horrified. So I find it really interesting that you kind of had this journey. And I wonder um, how how does your family um, feel about that? If it, if you mind, don't mind sharing. If that's too personal, I understand. Uh, no, I mean, um, uh, my uh, family were 
let me phrase this as generously as possible because they warrant the generosity. At the time, my family were not well pleased with this. Right, um, right. As you've alluded to, there is this historic context where um, the, the Anglican Church, the Episcopalian Church in Ireland, was a tool of the British imperial state here. So right. um, religion was used as one of the means by which to colonially oppress the right. native Irish people. And my grandfather was a leader in the Irish um, Revolutionary War. Uh, so um, while while my father is is a tremendously moderate person, there is kind of a, a family memory of right. um, how that battle to to establish Ireland's liberty and freedom was not it's not it's not that long ago, and it cost a great deal, and it took it took seven hundred or eight hundred years before we successfully <laughs> did it, and and you know uh, six counties still remain in in control. Uh, under under the British rule, so so religion is is not the cause of any conflict in Ireland, but it has been a means by which to exacerbate conflict or direct it in ways that were particularly. Uh, I could talk about this for hours. I'll cut straight to the <laughs> point. the The particular tradition that I um, became um, a Christian through is Presbyterianism, right? Uh, and um, in the north of Ireland. There was a, a crazy ideologically um, motivated uh, political activist called Ian Paisley in the 1950s who was driven by a sectarian hatred of Catholics and he very strongly supported the loyalty towards the, the, the United Kingdom and he set up his own church like you know, right. uh, I don't know, you're, you guys are familiar <laughs> with these characters. Uh, um, Paisley had a better sense of humor than Jerry Falwell, uh, but <laughs> but he's in the same kind of territory, a little empire builder, oh, and and he adopted the name Free Presbyterian for his church. Now he had nothing to do with the Presbyterian Church, and his theology wasn't Presbyterian, and he's got you know he had no real love of John Calvin or anything. Right. But but down in Dublin, none of this this nuance got through. All all we knew was that anything to do with Presbyterian had to do with this guy who would, um, first of all, declare the Catholics were all hellbound, and second of all, kind of license this violent rhetoric that um, that genuinely, genuinely fueled the civil war in the North. Yeah. So you can understand that my parents are like, what the hell? <laughs> uh, we, we thought that you were not particularly religious and that wasn't a big deal. We were, you know, trying to be cool about that. But now you come and you tell us that you're going to a presbyterian church like this is <laughs> this isn't just a betrayal of catholicism it's a betrayal of your your irish nationality right um so that was a difficult process for them and uh it's a testimony to how great they are that uh they probably don't remember any of that now they're wholeheartedly um supporters of my uh, faith journey and have come to deeply respect the good bits of my tradition my right. adopted tradition and um, they are not slow to make fun of me for the excesses. <laughs> and uh, so, the, you know, it's, it's a happy story, but uh, that doesn't mean that every single moment in that process was easy. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, it deeply resonates with me. I would say that um, uh, I also came from uh, a tradition that was... Um, 
that was pretty rigid about what, uh, that's an understatement, but, (laughs) um, I mean, I was also taught that Catholics were, you know, going to hell, but, um, I was taught everyone was going to hell. So, um, okay. Yeah. (laughs) So it's kind of a, and also, you know, you could do all of these things, but there's a good chance that you might still end up in hell too, even if you followed all of the rules. So, um, yeah, I mean, I understand that. And in the sense that, um, my parents are, and my family are still very much Christians. My parents are still very much committed to the way I was raised uh, religiously. And yet them and my brother, um, they, my dad and my brother are both ministers. Um, we have a great relationship and um, we, we don't really let that stand in the way. Now we don't have a lot of conversations about those things. Um, and we definitely don't have a lot of conversations about my current path in life. But there is this deep love that transcends those differences, which in the U.S. right now is is kind of a big deal because a lot of people don't have that. Yeah, yeah. You need more of that transcendent love. Yes, yes. Uh, From an outsider's perspective, it seems like, uh, you know, religion is a significant issue and it's (laughs) one that people have strong feelings about. And that's right and proper. But uh, you guys are falling out over all kinds of uh, relatively minor minor cultural issues that um yeah maybe well you mentioned the hopefully cooler Goblin. heads will prevail yeah but yeah, i can't i can't I cope mean, with this stuff melissa i i mean i just i mean i i couldn't cope with jerry falwell senior uh right. was it falwell who blamed 9-11 on the gays and lesbians in his uh, insane language I, I might be wrong there, but it was one of those televangelist types. And then this Jerry Falwell yeah, Jr. Was. guy, uh, I mean, where do you even begin the tackiness of this? Uh, <laughs> nothing else, just the sheer lack of class that's demonstrated in this 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 person. And I, I can't imagine a religious community that could be sustained under leadership that's so profoundly unwise as to let this guy make a mockery of the things we're meant to treasure. Um, uh, well, the philosophy know, department got shut down in Liberty, you know, so-called Liberty University earlier yeah. this year because they didn't have funding, but they're going to give this guy a ten and a half million dollar payout. Uh, yeah, well, this is bizarre. It's just, it is, and you know, I know that you see on Twitter, you see a lot of um, people who consider themselves ex-evangelicals who were raised evangelical and have left that and gone in all sorts of directions, including many women who've gone in a similar direction as me. And Jerry Fowler is a great example of, of why that's happened. I mean, that's not the whole reason, but it's a portion of it because there was leadership like that. And when you can't respect when there's not authenticity there um, and there are these not even double standards, just like, I don't even know what to call it, but you know, where there's all these expectations and then um, there's not anyone who's actually living a life. You were talking about how you found Christianity through a group of people whose lives aligned with what they believed, who really lived out what they believed. And that, that resonates deeply with me because that's always the kind of person that I have been. And, you know, seeing all of this unfold, it just, that's kind of that's kind of what happened you know we saw a lot of hypocrisy 
So. I mean, hypocrisy is almost too small a word for it, but it's a good word because Jesus, Jesus likes the word hypocrite. Um, uh, he uses it a lot to describe the religious leaders of his day. And uh, the tri- Whited sepulchers, is that better? Pardon? Whited sepulchers, is that better? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> we can just go full biblical on this. Uh, I, do, I do think that, I mean... It's just fire and brimstone territory for these guys. Um, uh, uh, The tragic thing is, the the core message of Christianity surely is about uh, the inevitable frailty of our best efforts. Mm. It ought to be the greatest license in the world, to use the word that you just used there, uh, to be authentic. Uh, To state clearly the ways in which you're failing. (laughs) <laughs> and instead, there's this posturing and this presentation of uh, kind of pristine perfection that is so shallow and, and thin that everybody can see right through it. Yeah. But that doesn't in any way lessen the devastation that is brought about either yeah. uh, in personal lives or kind of in, in, the, in the health of the institution when people like Falwell are revealed to just be taking the piss Um yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, I can only imagine all of the kind of uh, stereotypical, uh, very pleasant Southern white haired American older women who are giving large chunks of their money to to Christian yes. institutions that are run in such a way as to be a kind of a pyramid scheme where, where yeah, Farwell, Farwell gets to mess around on a boat with a, a younger woman who's wearing a, some kind of wig, I presume, or I hope this, this famous photograph of him with his... Uh, his belt undone yeah. uh you know that's <laughs> this is this is not pope francis that we're talking about on a whole bunch of different levels um so so many uh i, I mean i i would have used the word evangelical to describe myself but of course in in europe it means something entirely different um i would hope <laughs> but but I, I think i've come to the point not that i spend a lot of time worrying about the labels but i think i've come to the point where i'm not going to describe myself as an evangelical anymore um so you've got to have royally screwed up if if you've gotten to the stage where uh, uh, European Protestants are are renouncing the language that Martin Luther gave us. Uh, yes. Like what uh, what a what a dreadful and heinous fuck up they've made of their witness. So yeah, we yes. we would like the American Church to do better, and I would find it very difficult to be a Christian in the United States of America. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that grace and understanding um, for those of us who have taken a different path because, and I will say, I don't think that it's completely fair for, for me to blame the choice that I've made on people like that or on the way the church is or anything. I still think that your, your spiritual journey has to be your spiritual journey. And that's probably a teaching that I was taught as a child that will never go away, but it has to be your spiritual journey. You have to take responsibility for it, just like for the rest of your life. And if you believe something, regardless of what those around you are acting like, you know, um, you have to find, you have to find truth in that. So, yeah, they're being whatever they're being, whatever we want to call them. And also, I think people who find um, true Christianity, like 
that resonates with their authentic self, like you're talking about, like my parents, um, things like this annoy them and frustrate them. And also it doesn't stand in the way of, of their faith either. Yeah, I, 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 I obviously empathize a great deal with the idea of, of being true to yourself. Uh, you know, it always reminds me of Martin Luther. I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, but apparently he stood before uh, the Diet of Worms, this big council he was called to, and he said, here I stand, I could do no other. You know, when, right. once you're convinced <laughs> of the truth of something, um, it's, the, it's the most devastating thing in the world if you, if you betray yourself by... Uh, by kind of softening that or spinning that to make it socially acceptable. But I then worry about how it is that these guys always take their humiliation, disappear for a year, and then come back again. Like this, this yeah. uh, it's not resurrection because uh, because they never die. It's just resuscitation. They just they just uh, slide out of the limelight for a while, wait until the visceral fury that their uh, misconduct elicits in us dies down, and then they come back with a story of um, kind of facile repentance, and and this is what passes for redemption. And I think that at the heart of that is this American idea of the the solitary, radically alienated individual who gets to kind of subjectively yeah. declare, "Oh, I have experienced this," you know, um, kind of striking realization that what I did was wrong and full stop, you know, no reparation. Um, yes. No move to really any, any change of life. Um, yes. So I, I, I both, there's no accountability. Yeah. So I, I, I both love this uh, impulse that's so present in your society to, to seek your own path. But I also worry about the way in which fundamentally the authority, the accountability just becomes yourself. Yeah. So I confidently yeah. predict that in a year and a half, Falwell will come back and ha he'll describe a story of how he navel-gazed for a little bit and maybe went to counselling and he had a very hard time and now he's come out the other side of it and he's ready to lead again. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and I think know, that's crazy. Also, it is crazy. And what also will happen is um, his wife will never have that chance. Like, yes. She will yeah. be... And I think, you know, you have seen, I mean, you've seen a little bit on Twitter, but I have had experience with this same thing uh, with, um, I hesitate to call him an ex because I just, that just gives him too much power in my life. But with an ex of mine who is a Christian public figure and um, who there was, uh, you know, information that came out about him, a story that came out about him with that he had abused several of us women. And he didn't even take a year. He took like eight months. And then he was just like, I'm back. Yeah, Thanks yeah. for loving me, everybody. There's not even like and, a, an acknowledgement of wrongdoing, really. It's just like. A, no. Yeah. And the thing, I think the thing that I see like with the church, and I wrote a whole thing about this. And then I was like, you know what? I'm not putting it out there. But I, I was taught, I talked in it about how um, the church um, co-opted our voice like as and this happens often but as survivors of this abuse co-ops the voice of their survivor and says we forgive you when it's not really the the church's place to forgive them like if you are yeah. in that christian faith it's god's place to forgive them and the people that they've wronged and instead the church says well oh it sounds like you've done due diligence like we forgive you and there's been no apology 
to survivors, there's been no, like, here's what I know what I did wrong. Here's what I did wrong. Here's how I'm going to change it. There's no accountability there. Like we were talking about. And, um, and yet I find, and you and I had a conversation a little bit about this, um, when we were on the plane, um, I find that there's, there's not support for survivors of abuse when it comes to the Christian faith that much. Um, it's just not the case. And you and I talked a little bit about, you know, what it looks like for a, a man in um, religious power to um, listen to women and to um, like support environments that don't uh, continue to allow abuse to occur don't enable that. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because uh, it's been a little while since we talked about that. Uh, yeah, they're extensive and confused. Um, I, I remember the conversation. I don't think I'm ever going to forget the conversation, Melissa, because uh, the advice you gave me was so searingly uh, practical and also incredibly difficult to implement uh, because of you know social constraints and because of um, you know the um, I mean we're, we're, without wanting to kind of become a cliche of th this summer's um, social discontent, but the the profound systemic misogynist misogyny that that just pervades the church. Um, I feel like, I feel like the, again, a word that is often misused, but the, the sheer tsunami of microaggressions. Right. That any, any woman who tries to use the gifts that God has given her in leadership has to face and navigate. Uh, it's, it's no wonder that, that people choose to express their gifting in ways outside of the church. Right. Um, and since we had that um, conversation on the airplane, another, well, one of the things we talked about was, was how a, a theological figure who was very important um, in my uh, Christian formation and in the formation of my teachers uh, was revealed to have been an abuser, a serial abuser right. of the most serious kind. And right. he he went through a, a, a redemption process much more rigorous than the one we can anticipate for Falwell or for the person that you've just mentioned. Right. But it, it turns out that he was, you know, he, he was a smart guy and he was pretty much performing that. You know, it was right. not, not a course. real thing. Um, and then since then, I found out about another, like an, un an unbelievable giant, a man who I'd written publicly about. Um, yeah, I remember A, a that. man who I would have described as a saint, uh, and and it's, it's exposed that he too is this uh, serial abuser. And I'm left just desolate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on on a <laughs> to whom can you turn? Like where is where is your safety? Um, yeah. So and 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 how do I go out on? How do I stand in the pulpit and say you you should explore this message of Jesus here when 
I can't honestly say that the church is a safe place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, Jesus' great, great illustration here is talking about sheep and wolves. And I've been thinking about this this week about how um, the, he says that the, the wolf is in the sheep's clothing, which means that you can anticipate, this is not, this is not like in, in language from your childhood, this isn't a heretic. You know, it's not right. somebody who comes in with false teaching, in inverted commas, who you can kind right. of clearly identify as, as trying to damage the, the flock of the faithful. The wolf in sheep clothing looks like a sheep. Yeah. Meaning they teach the truth. But they deploy the gifting that God has given them so that they can devour the sheep. Yeah. And I'm yes. just, I'm lost because I don't know how to uh, I don't know how to proceed. I'm just a she- I'm just a sheep. Like I I can't fight a wolf, and I don't know how to how to navigate this. Um, yeah. Which is to say, in, in other words, the the voices of the victims who are able to speak are li- are like gold to faithful Christians. As difficult as it is, faithful Christians should look carefully at the abuse scandals in our different church traditions and pay attention yes. to the harm that has been caused by people who present themselves as spiritual masters and as wise and as gentle and as people who are trying to live after the way of Jesus and instead are actually um, are wolves who are hungry for flesh. And uh, what can I say? I'm, I feel like I, and I know in all of this, you know, it's not my place. Uh, it's the the male savior complex is just another version of that wolfish behavior. So, um, so it's it's not my place as the elder of a kind of local suburban congregation in Dublin to fix this. Um, but uh, I am heavy burdened by it. Yeah, yeah, I. Um... There's so many things that I thought of when you were sharing your thoughts on that. I think, first of all, the fact that you're seeing it is is that kind of first step. My um, my dad is a very uh, he's a very pure hearted man. Like that's just he has this deep innocence. Like that's how he walks through the world. And things like this are very difficult for him to comprehend, like even even comprehend, because it's so so different from the way he experiences the world and the way that he thinks about things. Um, so he, it's hard for him to even understand. And at the same time, and I, I have other very good men in my life who are similar. And at the same time, I think it's really important that we don't use our naivete to um, like hide our eyes from things in yeah. a sense, you know, uh, I think, so I think seeing it, first of all, is that first step. And not knowing what to do, that's okay. Like you, when you first see something, you're not going to know what to do. Like you have to be trained to know what to do in situations. You know, you don't just naturally know, like, this is how I handle this, you know? So I think that comes over time. And you mentioned I, you know, the male savior complex and I'm just a, you know, suburban minister here and everything. And, and it's not my job to change this. And I, I have a different perspective on that. I think that it's all of our jobs. Yes, to, yes, to yes. Change this. And I'm, I'm sure I understand what you were saying, you know, like in a big sort of 
way, but I think that this changes because of boots on the ground type thing, you know, in local congregations, in local conversations. I think that it changes and it changes when you notice a behavior towards a woman that someone is having and you point that out. Even if it is socially uncomfortable, I have a good friend who is a man who is a great ally for women and he repeatedly speaks up and I've asked him about it before and he said, I have this privilege. Why would I not use it to help someone else? Like, what are they going to do to me? Like, they're not going to, I can't actually be hurt for speaking up on this topic. Like, yeah, somebody gets annoyed at me. Oh, well, like no one's going to threaten to, to rape him. Um, No one's Mm -hmm. going to threaten to like come burn his house down or anything like that you know, because he's a man. So he said, I have this privilege. So I think whether we're talking about misogyny or, you know, there are a lot of conversations going on right now about systemic racism in the U.S., whatever privilege we have, I think being willing to use that when the opportunity presents itself is us doing the work in some small way, but an important way. Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely agree. Um, Um. And it it strikes me that if if that work is is to be done, the end result has to be kept in uh, the vision has to be uh, maintained of 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 uh, of what the alternative is that we're trying to build. Right. Um. So I think that um, the attitude that you describe as as naivete in your in people like your father, it's understandable because he he has surely trained himself to think well of other people, right, right, and to see the best in other people. Uh, but uh, you ha- you have to be willingly and actively, uh, stubbornly blind to deny that there is this problem within the church. Right. And 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 were we to really tackle the problem in the church, what we would have is this uh, tremendous unleashing of uh, human capacities right. that's that's currently blocked so yes, um so it's that. not just like it's not an abstract set of ideas about you know the right way to be or the just way to be it's um the there is the negative harm that's actually caused by misogyny within the church yeah. and then there is the the opportunity cost of that misogyny uh, in the in the in the fulfillment of the gifts that are currently yeah. left unopened, um, so uh, maybe people like me and people like your dad need to uh, be be reminded again and again that um, the encouragement and affirmation that we've had has allowed us to develop our abilities or our capacities, and and the sheer simple fact is that that is not extended. To women in the same way yeah you know, I, I i talked to you in on our flight about um the wonderful woman that i'm married to yes and yes she is a phenomenally powerful person but it is heartbreaking to me how um mature christian leaders in ireland throw every opportunity my way to learn from them <laughs> and it's like they don't see her. Yes. 
Yes. Now, there's, there's no question of abuse or anything like that going on there. There's, it's just a kind of uh, a neglect that's it's, it's an not oppression in a sense, though. Yes, uh, yeah, it is absolutely, uh, and systemically, it is oppressive. Um, right. You know, it, its its effect is to suppress right a, a, a whole class of people, um, but it's it's fueled by the good instinct that your father has and that Christian leaders, male Christian leaders are trying to cultivate, which is this whole thing of, of to think positively of the other person and to always put the other person's actions in the, in the best possible light. So that we would never move straight to the position where we would dare to say to someone else, uh, you're constantly preferring to take the opportunity to bestow your wisdom or your mentorship on people who are just like you. Yes. And the church is diminished when we uh, when we are just all of the same, just middle aged men with <laughs> short sleeved shirts who, you know, have the same opinions and the same attitudes, and uh, it's like a it's like a body that doesn't have an immune system when yes. when everybody when all the leaders are the exact same. Yeah. So I don't know. I yeah, you know, I'm not an optimist of you are gathering here. Yeah, yeah. You know, I you were saying like, and I, you know, I mentioned my dad is has this purity of heart and this innocence, but he also has that he has that same perspective of you when it comes to the way you were talking about your wife and how like it just breaks your heart that she doesn't have these opportunities. My dad has always looked at that world that way, just along with his innocence and his purity. There comes this well, that's not the way the world should be. You know, when my mom hasn't gotten opportunities or I have gotten opportunities, that has made him very angry when he sees women don't get the, those opportunities. But I think there's also this sense of, like you were saying, when you see that injustice, I don't know what I can do about it, you know? And I see that a lot. Um, I see that a lot in, in men in these situations. You were talking about um, not having a room that looks just like you or not having everyone in leadership who looks just like you. I was, I dated someone recently, not anymore, but I dated someone recently who was, uh, who is a writer. He is um, an author and he was, <laughs> he wrote this piece about how um, getting published is just about who you know. And then he told this story about how he got this six-figure publishing deal um, from, you know, just being in the room, just having dinner with these friends. While all these friends were also uh, white, male, <laughs> you know, privileged authors. And so we had this conversation where I was like, do you see how this could be so offensive to, I don't know, the entire rest of the world because they don't have yeah. the same opportunities as you. Like they don't have the same circle. It's not about who, you know, it's about who you know. And, you know, and we had this conversation and for him, it was just like, Oh yeah. He'd literally never looked at it that way. So I think that some of our, that goes back to that, like naivete, uh, our innocence, um, I think that that we have to take responsibility for our, our ignorance in some areas. We have to recognize our privilege and do the work of understanding what that means and how that affects other people. Um, yeah, that was a little rant, but. 
No, I, I very much appreciate the rant, but I, I, I do have one lingering concern, which is that we recognize that this is a, a, is a communal problem. It's a systemic yes. problem. But when you and I sit down to talk about this, all that we're able to come up with are individual actions. Um, and I think that that, and that's not in any way to to uh, dilute or diminish the uh, the culpability that you have described that's and put so your finger good. on and the responsibility to act. But um, but uh, but my my bafflement, I, I feel like I'm 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 pretty clear on it. You were very clear in the in our airplane flight as to as to what I should do in a particular instance. Um, so I get how one should act individually as right. a kind of um, uh, in all kinds of low-level mundane ways as uh, an agent, a catalyst for, for increased diversity and for um, accessibility to those, those conversations. You know, I, I'm obviously not dealing in six-figure uh, book deals, but uh, you know, <laughs> who, gets, who gets to preach in my little church is, is a conversation that I get to have some influence on. And I get that. But how do we systemically address the problem, um, both the problem of um, uh, making space for women in the church and then the even uh, more precarious problem of uh, how do we how do we protect against abuse in the church? I still don't know how we systemically address those issues. Yeah, um, because all the best practice documents in the world are are grand, but they're not they're not going to to stop the wolves and they're also not going to coerce the sexist yeah you know of all the people that i know in um <laughs> in uh who have the opportunity to make a difference in a big way um you're probably one of the people that i know who has the most opportunity for that just because of the you know that sort of um counselor role in a sense or that you play in the work that you do um in understanding issues in the world and i know that your uh focus is a different area than this but you have um you're in the room so to speak people talk about that yeah. a lot you're in the room and um i think even bringing up these questions i know there are many people bringing up these questions but just kind of opens the door for more of that conversation. And this isn't a problem that just one of us is going to solve. It's something that has to be continually discussed and ideas tried. And I'm with you though. It is, I don't have an answer either, but I know that talking about it is a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good place to start. Um, uh, Melissa, I'm interested uh, to hear more about uh, how your spiritual journey has gone in the last couple of months. Okay. So, um, am, am, I, am I distracting away from the podcast trajectory? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, you know, we had a, a conversation, our conversation on the airplane. Um, and I, for me, uh, I, when I started therapy and started dealing with, um, I, I've had a complex trauma. So I've had uh, multiple um, experiences with sexual trauma all throughout my life. And when I began to face that and work through that, um, my, the teaching of God that I was taught, like Christian God that I was taught, 
um, Judeo-Christian God, um, it, it didn't fit with my experience anymore. It wasn't a true thing. And I have always, always lived exactly what I believe. I don't have the capacity to fake it. It's just, it's just not in me. Mm. And so, um, as I began to heal, actually begin to heal, began to take ownership for my own life, um, and experience what that meant, began to reclaim my body and, and heal my body as well as my soul and my mind. Um, these ideas about God that I had been taught, just, they didn't resonate with me anymore. They didn't feel true anymore because they weren't true. What I'd been taught wasn't true. This idea that, um, you know, God is always with you and he will protect you and he will show up when you call on him. And that never happened, you know, and really, really bad things happened um, from men who were uh, Christians, who were in ministry, who all of these things. And so God didn't save me. I had to save myself. And it wasn't until I took ownership of that practice of whatever that looked like that um, I began to heal. So that was kind of the beginning of that journey. And um, it was it was really interesting because there was so much fear that I was taught growing up in the, the Christian um, subculture that I grew up in. And this idea that, um, you know, this constant fear of doing the wrong thing and going to hell. And um, I have synesthesia. I don't know if you know what that is. It's um, yes, yes. Yeah. So when people describe something to me, there are a lot of times when I feel it in my body, I'll taste it, I'll smell it, like all this stuff. So I grew up with this very real picture of hell and understanding what it would feel like to go to hell, to be burning forever in this pit of fire in my flesh and would be continually melting off of me in the smoke and all this kind of thing. And I think when I finally realized that some things that I had been taught were not true, it made mm. it easier to let go of these other things that had kept me in fear and had trapped me. So my journey since then, it was not, I didn't intend to move in any spiritual direction. I was just letting go and working on healing myself. But what's happened is I've begun exploring, um, I guess you would say like paganism in a sense. I've begun exploring uh, um, goddess religions and things like that. And it's not in the sense anymore that I, hmm, how do I say this? I, uh, I think it would be egotistical of me to believe that there is nothing larger than myself out there, no entity larger than myself um, or more advanced than myself. Um, I can't, I can't say that. Um, I think in the traditional sense of like what I was raised, I don't necessarily believe in gods and goddesses and things like that, but the practices of those things, the rituals of those things, um, have taught me a lot about myself and I use those to learn about myself and to grow as a person and to become a more loving person, to become a more whole person, to, you know, do my healing journey. So there are a lot of, a lot of different sort of eclectic uh, practices that I've picked up along the way. And I kind of take from here and there, I read a lot of different religious texts and, um, I, I just practice making meaning from them that feels meaningful to me. And, um, and also reclaiming this sense of divine in myself. I was taught, you know, growing up that um, I 
that I wasn't worthy. God was worthy, but there was no worth in me. You know, there's this old hymn that says, uh, that talks about being a worm. And it's this idea of, of degradation. You know, I am nothing at all. And in order to <laughs> be able to reclaim myself from the abuse that I experienced, I needed to see my worth and I needed to understand my value. And that's been the journey that I've been on. So does it look like the faith of my childhood? Does it look like uh, traditional Christianity? No, because that doesn't work with me with what I've experienced. Um, but I am a spiritual person and I do have daily sacred practices and, and devotional times. And I think that's growing me and helping me become a better person, which I think is the point or should be the point of our spiritual practice, regardless of what faith we're a part of. So I don't know if that answers your question, but. I mean, of course, it's a great answer. Um, um, it's, I mean, it's almost a full account, except you keep saying the word practices. And I'm like, well, what is it? What is it? Oh, do you practice? Yeah. what that means? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I presume that because you've, as you're describing it there, it doesn't sound like there's a kind of uh, an, an agent to which one would, would call upon but that doesn't mean that you can't be praying or uh, right. meditating in some way. Um, yes. And you're kind of cobbling, uh, stitching, weaving together sources to kind of constitute a, a written tradition for you to reflect upon. Yes. Um, and I presume that like when you say rituals, what you're kind of describing is liturgies. Yes. That are like reconstructed from, from, uh, you know, recollections of what, what, what might've been paganism. Um, and creating my own. Uh, I think that's yes. part of what okay. works for me is making meaning. So you're myself. still an evangelical. <laughs> you, you're still an American, American evangelical. You're, but you're just now doing it uh, through divine goddess paganism. You're making it to, to fit you, uh, which is, yeah, um, which is authentic. Um, Go ahead. Uh, no, sorry, there's, uh, there's been a gap here. I, I wasn't saying anything. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I have nothing to, to add. I was oh. waiting for, for you to respond to my joke about you being an evangelical oh. pagan. An evangelical <laughs> pagan. I mean, well, it's definitely yeah. not the worst thing that I've been called. So, um, <laughs> But, you're not quite a born again pagan, but you're getting there. I'm getting there. It's a journey, right? We all have to. Take yeah. Our time. I think the thing uh, for me that I I'm looking for things that resonate with me, right? That resonate with my wholeness. And so the, when I talk about ritual, when I talk about practices, um, there's this tradition in paganism of cyclical living. So um, you know, there's this idea of the year of the world. I mean, the year, the, the year, the wheel of the year. Sorry, I got all mixed up there. But it's this sense of, of seasonal living. And then also there are practices of, um, of coming into community and, um, you know, self-evaluation, self-growth um, during moon phases, right? So this is a very, these are like very yeah. ancient sort of ideas, but this idea of cyclical living is, feels very healthy to me. Like it feels um, 
it works for me. I like it. I didn't grow up with a lot of festivals and things like that. And so I love that sort of thing. I love liturgy. I even have, um, when I said I'm cobbling things together, I even have uh, saints medals that I bought from, a, you know, a Catholic church that I wear and that resonate with me. Um, and whenever, this is probably, I hope this is not offensive, but whenever I go, I love old Catholic churches. Whenever I go to one, I always buy a candle and light a candle um, to the goddess <laughs> in a Catholic church. So I apologize if that's offensive. No, I think the uh, Catholic tradition is replete with examples of where they're, uh, the, the missionaries have been happy to go and adopt and baptize uh, the religious traditions that pre-existed. So, um, so if someone takes offense, that's fine. Yes. Uh, you can apologize to them. But I think that uh, they, they might just as, as easily grant that uh, it's kind of, there's a karma element there, isn't there? <laughs> that, yeah. uh, the Catholic missionaries went around the world and said, no, the, the god or goddess that you're worshiping is actually the one that we've come to tell you about. Right. Uh, so you're subversively coming into our territory now and, and playing the <laughs> trick that we used to play. Um, Without yeah. the intention intention to convert anyone. I think really underneath it all, I think this idea of divinity and um, something bigger than ourselves, uh, in my mind, uh, regardless of what faith tradition we come from, I think we are all worshiping or uh, practicing and learning from this same this same sort of energy right i'm from california we talk about things like energy yeah um, but i i think that underneath it all like when when we're practicing it in um a good healthy way underneath it all that energy is hopefully the same it's subverted often by humans because that's what we do but um to me we're you know part of one family which there are a lot of uh strong feelings about that in christianity so <laughs> yeah i mean uh, it's undeniable uh that we're part of one family and i think the bible is very clear that we're one family um there's no no ambiguity about that um i i, I do i'm i am struck by how often people tell me that divinity is something bigger than humanity and i think that that's an idea that i had been raised with um, and and it's one of the key ideas that uh, that convinces me about Christianity, uh, because when when properly understood, the the claim being made is is quite remarkably revolutionary. Uh, it's subversive of all the religions, because what Christianity is saying is not that divinity is greater than humanity. It's that that divinity has become human. Yes. Um, so, so, so one of the things I'm str struck by, one of the things that, that kind of leaves me cold about um, the new spiritualities is I worry that they have very little, I, I appreciate and empathize with the, the search for wholeness and think that that's really legitimate and can see the benefit that, that comes from that. Like it's obvious and mm -hmm. um, uh, it's to be encouraged, you know, that, that people would, uh, <laughs> if only more people went through monthly processes of self-evaluation with the hope of growing to being people who are better at and more effective at loving others 
uh, that's definitely something I affirm wholeheartedly, preach it, amen, and so on. <laughs> I do worry that it has, uh, as I've been exposed to it, and it's indirect, but I worry that there's very little space for weakness and frailty. Mm. Um, oh, really? Because, that's and I, I, for, for you, for, I, I can see in your lived experience how that's not, that's not that's not even in the top 100 things that's pressing because you're coming from a position where um where harm has been done to you by religious actors but generally speaking i think that uh, human beings um are are at their best when they are able to confess their weaknesses um and i'm not sure that that uh i'm not sure that i myself can 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 lose myself in a re- religious proposition that seeks for wholeness. Yeah. Um, because I feel like that's like everything in this in this contemporary society um, is about presenting myself as competent and capable and efficient and self-maximizing and self-actualizing. And you know, I, I get promoted because I do what I do and I do it well and I do it fast and I do it relevantly and, you know, I succeed in my relationships in the same way and, and on and on. It's just constant toiling after increased and optimized performance. Yeah. Uh, what I find profound uh, in, those, in those moments of religious insight and epiphany that don't come especially regularly to me but when they have arrived they have been overwhelming what what is a recurring motif is the acceptance of the truth of things below the surface which mm-hmm. is not that i'm competent and capable but that i'm a, a, a chaos bound together by pieces of string that somehow work most of the time yeah so um so i'm interested in um whether or not it's possible for someone on their own to construct a system of course you're not entirely on your own because right. you do have your community with you but but i'm interested in in um whether that that permission to be weak yeah. has to be something that breaks in from the outside yeah you know because otherwise the vulnerability is just absolutely annihilating yes Anyway, I'm I'm waffling now, so I apologize. No, no, but... no. It's that's so good, and I think um, I think words are very important to me, and I know that they are important to you too. You know, they have specific meanings to us, right? We all have um, our our sort of uh, connotation when it comes to that. And when I talk of wholeness, mm. the practices that I have been exploring um, ha- encourage. Um, exploration of your shadow right that's kind of the phrasing or the language but those those shadow aspects of your yeah life, i'm, I'm familiar frail, with that language and it's, it's yeah. good it's potent language yeah that frail and fragile or parts that have been designated as like bad or negative but the work is really and then and i've done this in therapy too is understanding those parts understanding those needs and so when we talk about wholeness it's not about being this perfect shiny person who has it all together it's more about this constant work of growth and evolution deeper into yourself and understanding like you're going to fuck it up sometimes. And so learning how like one of the practices I've been trying to really work on lately is self-compassion. When I get it wrong, yeah. recognizing it, um, seeing that 
wrongness of the situation, having compassion on myself and also taking steps to rectify what I've done wrong. If it's involved another person or if it's involved myself, how am I going to change this in the future? But understanding like, okay, this is an area of weakness in myself. As you said, this is an area for me to work on and to grow in. And I think that that work never ends because we're humans and we are bottomless pits of, um, you know, things that need to be healed and, you know, transformed. So yeah. In, in completion. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm struck as well, Melissa, again and again, when I talk to you about how, um, how, how you, you say words matter. It's, it's really almost a punchline that the, the religious viewpoint that accurately describes me now is Christian. Right. And the religious viewpoint that accurately described you in your youth was Christian. Yeah. But, and those two things are in the same family, but the experience and the content of Christianity in my world right. and in your world is so radically different. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, typically in, in, in European contexts, there is a, I mean, all of us here over on this side of the Atlantic basically have, have abandoned organized religion to right. some degree, but there is a lingering remorse for what has been lost. Mm. You know, there's a great Irish poet, Dennis O'Driscoll, who died about five years ago, and he had a great poem called Missing God. He entirely, he was entirely secular. Mm. Um, but uh, but this great poem is about all of the the tiny, small, almost insignificant ways in which the lack is felt. Mm. You know, uh, 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 missing him when a choked voice at the crematorium recites the poem about fearing no more the heat of the sun. You know, it, it's an amazing poem. Yeah. But I don't think I would miss the God you were raised with. Yeah. You, um, you miss the spirituality, but not the not this figure. I, I could imagine that I might miss the community if I wasn't such an introverted <laughs> and antisocial person. Same. Um, but uh, I, 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 you know, you know, I have a, I have a little son who I dote on entirely, and he's the joy of my life. And I, I, I tell him all the time about about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Right. I will. I won't have to tell him about hell because he, he's going to read the Gospels and he's going to ask me questions about it. Mm -hmm. But I have no fear, right, for Amen, mm -hmm. because the God that I worship is faithful. Mm -hmm. And you know, Amen was baptized nine weeks into his life, and it's not that that saves him in that way that American evangelicals are obsessed with getting saved, <laughs> but it is the case that. Uh, the community of people who call Jesus their Lord and Savior in that town of Luke and gathered together on that morning and in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit said, Amen is one of us and we trust that God yeah. is going to honor that. Yeah. So I don't have this fear. Yes. And it seems to me to be like a trauma to inflict on a child. It is. This 
I, to the extent that I wonder, is it is it the same religion? Or and then I think, like your father, I think, oh, I'm becoming very judgmental, yeah. and I should check myself before I wreck not myself but wreck others. And you know, then Jesus will say, well, you wrecked yourself in doing that. Uh, you know, yeah. Then the cycle continue, cycle begins, and then never stops. Where I'm second guessing whether or not making a simple judgment is in fact being judgmental. Um, well. I think that's scriptural, it, though. I mean, not to, but like, you know, the whole idea of true, the like true religion is, you know, and, and what is said about that. Um, it's been a while since I've read the Bible, but if I'm quoting it correctly, something to do with, you know, caring for widows and orphans and, and things like that, you know, there's this true sense of true religion that scripture talks about. And then I think there is this you know, human version of it that is subverted. Yes. Yeah. What the Lord requires is not uh, perfect chastity or whatever would have been the word for the the kind of um, purity culture virtue that you were raised in. <laughs> yeah. um, it's uh, uh, it's a, a difficult one for me to, to, to kind of reconcile. Um, but But it's helpful for me to hear about how the um the journey that you're on and it's interesting to me that the journey you're on um is obviously very different from and has to be different from the the one that you are raised with but in many ways it's corrective of the excesses yes um it's it you know and when i was growing up i'm sure everyone who is raised in any sort of faith maybe not maybe people don't but i had a hard time with devotional aspects of it daily daily devotion right you know reading your bible every day praying every day like doing all these things i would do it for a little while and then i would stop and what i found as an adult is that the spiritual disciplines that i instill in my life now that sort of corrective action in a sense is life-giving to me and i understand what some christians who found that sort of daily devotional to be life-giving mean now you know um Sorry, I went off on a whole other tangent than what you were talking about, but it just... No, no, I mean, I I don't think you did. um, Even the fact that you're able to form habits now is corrective of the way in which the kind of... uh, uh, What's the polite way to describe the religious tradition you were... um, But the the free-floating individualistic christianity that you were raised in wasn't able to give you basic day-to-day um habits right and we require habits to form virtues so so it's impossible for us to act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with god if if that's just something that we do in in extraordinary moments we need to be able to do it in the mundane monday to friday boring life so if if your if the current path you're on is um help if one of your focuses is is trying to inculcate a daily habit then that itself is corrective of the the kind of diminished and undernourished tradition that you were raised in yes yes does that does that make sense and it's just it uh, makes sense yeah i'm just shaking my head like resonating with everything you're saying um, and I mean, well, what can I say except without wanting to, to encourage syncretism and of course uh, Christianity is the only true religion and everybody else is going to hell. Right. No, I'm not joking. <laughs> uh, I am, I'm interested in, in what you would make of Ignatian spirituality um, 
of the the Jesuit way of approaching Christianity, um, because it's grounded on this practice called the examen. Uh, am I am I kind of preaching to no, to, to the choir? Continue. here? I love uh, learning. I love learning. Like you, I there's nothing. Um, yes, please continue. Well, well, the the examen. You know, you you, you talked about this um, um, kind of regular process of self evaluation that you go through. Um, the the examen is short for examination of conscience mm. and the actual Jesuits and the Jesuit priest, it takes about 14 years to train as a Jesuit priest. So I'm not exaggerating when I describe them as the ninjas of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're very highly trained and they typically would, would go through the examine in the morning and at lunchtime and at bedtime. And the, the kind of five steps to it are that, first of all, you still yourself so that you become aware yeah. of the fact that God is present. And then you review the day, focusing particularly on gratitude. Yes. And then you take time to pay attention to your emotions. Yes. And then, uh, especially in the evening time, you you focus on one particular day, or one particular feature of the day, and then that 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 is the thing you bring to the Lord in prayer. You know, so if it was a tense and fraught conversation with a colleague, or if it was a beautiful moment with a dear friend, or you know, that's, you know, whatever it is that that bubbles to the surface is the most pressing it, having gone through this process of examination yeah you discern that and you bring that and then and then you take a moment to kind of look to what comes next this is my and, day that you're describing oh, like i'm sitting here laughing because i literally do all of these things throughout my day and have a routine of doing them throughout my day yes well look you're just uh <laughs> really you're obviously on on the path of Ignatius, and you're, you'll have a few uh, profound uh, mystical experiences about the love of God and end up uh, founding some Catholic order. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm Going sure. to the Pope and asking for permission to, uh, to establish the, well, the first Californian order. See, that would be, um, that, that would probably be where things went wrong because I don't know that I'll ever. Um, ever have the capacity in me to ask a man for permission ever again <laughs> so of any kind and i understand that the Pope not wait a second you asked me for permission to give me a call so that we could have this podcast uh, i I'm mean joking. in the sense of, of something yeah, that I know. turns the direction of my life i know um yeah yeah but but yes all yeah. of what you're saying see i was i i also have this belief and i think that a lot of people well maybe not a lot of people do but i think that um like true things resonate regardless of whose mouth they come out of, right? So what it, it doesn't matter what um, what tradition it comes from, whether it's a Christian tradition of some sort, whether it's some ancient pagan religion of some sort, when there is some element of something that resonates as true with my life and the way I want to live my life and the person that I am, I, I want to be quick to learn from that and to embrace that um, instead of just rejecting it because of the source, you know? Mm. I, I absolutely agree. In, within Presbyterianism, there's a slogan about how we, we ought to reject life from no quarter. Mm, yeah. Um, and of course, uh, Paul, you know, who, who often is maligned, I think very unfairly, St. Paul, who wrote large chunks of the right. New Testament, um, in the New Testament, he he quotes pagan um, poets, right. uh, uh, 
repeatedly. And in one of his most famous interactions with the, the philosophers in Athens, he approvingly quotes uh, one of their statues. So he obviously was uh, similarly a person who, who um, sought wisdom and, and didn't, didn't feel like it had to have brand loyalty right. before, <laughs> before he would adopt it. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think that, I, I would like to think that that, that, that the, the day of kind of thinking that whatever discipline you've committed yourself to is the one that contains all the truth, that's surely a redundant idea. Well, we would hope so, but unfortunately I do yeah. know many folk who feel that way. And it's not just, um, you know, religious experience. I think in America we see it in our political arenas as well. You know, um, people are very committed to one way regardless. And I think it's unfortunate because you miss out on so much wisdom and so much beauty when you close off parts of yourself to something because of the source. I had a professor in uh, college, an undergrad, who um, used to say, eat the chicken, spit out the bones. You know, there's yeah. there are good things everywhere. So... Yeah, no, I, as you say that, I, I realise that you're entirely right because I would have lots of friends who are very committed on uh, the socialist and communist side of politics. Right. And one of the recurring uh, kind of refrains that they have is this question of, of whether or not this source or that source is sufficiently leftist. Right. Um, you know, there's this uh, pursuit of purity. Um, that is easy to laugh at, but, um, but I suppose it's... It, it, it sources that we want to have a tribal identity yes. that is um, that's well bounded, that reassures us, and it's a whole lot more um, risky and treacherous to 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 step out into the world and 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 say, in many cases, your enemy yourself, your your enemy is going to be the person who has the truth that yeah. that you need to hear. Um, yeah, but. but uh, you began by talking about curiosity. I think we're both sufficiently curious I people that we're not we're not able to uh, to just stay within the boundaries that we we've been given by our um, respective traditions. But you know what? I think that um, I think that that's a gift to the world um, because you know there are a lot of people who don't have that capacity who don't have the capacity for curiosity it's not how they're wired i mean i would hope that all of us are wired for curiosity but i think that there are some people whose mind doesn't work that way and who probably were raised in cultures that didn't support that and i think being able to think curiously and come at the world from a posture of curiosity you and i both are also able to share that and our experiences with the world because we're both writers and I think I think that's a gift. Our curiosity is not just a gift to ourselves, but it's something that we can offer to the world too. So, do you think uh, curiosity can be a problem? I mean, <laughs> I don't know that I would ever be able to say that. Here, I can give you one example when it was a problem. Um, well, uh, two actually. One, I I dated someone, and he um, he broke things off because he said that I was too curious. And I cared about things that were important, but he just didn't care about them. So um, <laughs> apparently you can be too curious, but I took that as a compliment. I actually felt very seen by that breakup message um, that I was too curious. So there's that. But yeah, I think that there are curiosities in a sense. Um, 
it has to be balanced by the rest of self, right? If we let that curious part of ourself just run wild, well, it will be curious about everything. Let me put my hand in this fire and see how long it takes to burn, right? Like what would happen if I like twisted this person's arm? I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like there, curiosity is just curiosity. It's not good or evil, but it has to be tempered, I think, by uh, our character. I don't know. Does that sound cool? Yeah, no, I think I've that's a good answer. I've never said that before. That's yeah. Uh, I, I'm, my favorite movie is Jurassic Park. Oh, uh, I, I've watched it many, 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 many times uh, since I first saw it when I was 11. And uh, one of the uh, great kind of uh, subtexts within the movie is that uh, our, our curiosity is dangerous because right. uh, what is it that Dr. Malcolm says at one point in a kind of dispute with the owner of Jurassic Park, he says, uh, uh, your scientists never stopped to ask whether your discovery was going to be good or not. Right. Uh, it, the question was whether they could do it, not whether they should do right. it. So they, they were curious, you know, and this is, you know, revealing just how lowbrow my brain is actually below all the Dostoevsky references <laughs> that just go back to movies about dinosaurs. But, um, but, but I've all, always been, um, been interested uh, in the point where, where where curiosity ought to be tempered by character, right. so that we recognize that there. Are, and I don't mean in the sense of nosiness. Do do you have that? Right. Is that a, a word that you have in America, uh, where you're prying into other yes. people's nosiness? Uh, yes. But I mean, I mean, yeah. Uh, so uh, I mean, genuine curiosity. Right. There are, there are things that are probably not good for us to know, not good for us to pursue. Right. Um. You know, like. Well. Uh, there might be some way to kill someone by pinching their neck, but I don't need to actually have that information. Of course, the internet is is the, the clear proof of this. If anybody there is out there listening is wondering whether or not we're right, <laughs> they can just ask themselves: do they do they want to click on every link that's available to them? And they, you know, I think uh, there's lots of things out there that we don't want to know. Yeah, I think curiosity needs to be directed, right? Um, our curiosity yeah. needs to be directed and it does it when you are pointing it in certain directions you have to be willing to partner it with ethics right um if i'm just curious about historical things okay i can probably dig as deep as i want to dig you know what i mean but if i'm curious about yeah. something that i'm going to take action on then i do need to think about the repercussions but i feel like that is a part of evolving and growing as a person that we should think about all the actions that we take in that sense, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. There's so much more that I would love to get into with you. Um, you know, we're going to have to do this again. I'm actually probably gonna have to split this into two episodes, but then you and I are going to have to come back for another one because I want to talk about at some point with you, um, the ethics of wealth, which we've had conversations about before is an area that, um, you are, uh, you speak out in, you write about, um, all of those kind of things. And so I'd love to explore that more. And then we didn't even, we didn't get to talk about poetry, which I wanted to talk about. You and I both have passion for poetry. And also I wanted to talk about Claire and I wanted to talk about your love story. So we're going to have to come back and do this again, if you're open to that. 
I am, but first you should make sure that uh, there's a receptivity in the world for that. I because, don't care. You know, uh... I'm just recording. <laughs> I'm recording conversations with people that I um, find interesting and that spur me to growth. And I have to believe. Well, I, I mean, I guess I don't have to. Maybe this is an American thing too. But um, there are people out there who need to hear this. And what I'm learning is that if it's ten people or if it's a hundred thousand people, it doesn't really matter how many there are as long as somebody is impacted by it. Cool. I uh, I definitely agree with you. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead, though I don't want to, and um, and close us out. But thank you so much for joining me. This is such a wonderful conversation, and I'm going to leave it with so many things to think about and consider, and I really appreciate that about you. Me too, um, Melissa. Thank you for inviting me on. All right. Well, you take care and we'll talk soon. Great. Thanks. See you. Thanks for joining me today. If you'd like to follow Kevin on Twitter, he can be found at Kevin Hargaden. And if you'd like to support the show, feel free to Venmo us at Melissa B. Hawks. Thanks for joining us and have a great day. Love you. Mean it. Thank you.